0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.
1: Father, I thank you and praise you so much for your grace in sending your son Jesus to buy us back from sin and death with his own life poured out um, on the cross. And I thank you, Lord, for the way that living in light of what you've done for us changes everything and changes the way we view everything. It changes how we are and what we do and how we view what we do and who we are. And so we ask, Lord, that this morning especially you would um, break in and break through to us through the words of Scripture, um, through the witness of the traditions of the church. And would you speak into our own situations, whatever they may be, but especially into the situation of living out the calling of motherhood. And would you do this for your glory's sake and for our benefit and the benefit of those we love and serve in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Um, I'm going to cover just a little bit of what spiritual disciplines are because you may or may not know that there's an official category for what spiritual disciplines are. Um, And then I'm going to talk about a couple different books that talk about spiritual disciplines. And then I'm going to land on a book that you might have heard of, it's called um, it's called Long Days of Small Things, Motherhood as the Spiritual Discipline. And so I'm not just going to parrot everything she says, but I will recommend this book to you if it's something that interests you as a topic. Um, but I'm going to give you a lens through which to view it that will hopefully make it even more helpful for you. It's been helpful for me, but so I do recommend it, but I want to recommend it with one caveat. So, okay, so again, what are spiritual disciplines? And forgive me if you might know this, but a lot of people don't realize that there is a history of classic spiritual disciplines that were taken on by different, um, different people throughout church history. Really in the 3rd and 4th century, way back, um, there were these strong Christians, these strong Christian men, mostly, some women, but mostly men, who decided to go out and be hermits for Jesus. They decided to go live in the desert, far away from all of um, society, and to fast and pray and spend time with the Lord. And in... Among those um, Christian monks, those earliest Christian monks, there St. Anthony was the most famous among them. In the 4th century, he resisted all of these temptations while he was out in the desert. And there were these uh, chronicles of his life that um, that kind of had this almost mythological description of the temptations and how God um, miraculously gave him the strength to resist. Um, well, St. Anthony was out there in the Egyptian desert, Um, kind of between, if you kind of think of the Egyptian desert, it's like between Israel and um, Egypt itself, if you think of the Nile River out there. Um, And St. Anthony was out there alone, and all of these other hermits heard about him, and they wanted to come and be like him and be with him. And so I know so much for being a hermit. So St. Anthony, that sounds familiar. I just want to get away and have some peace and quiet. Well, no, everyone else wanted to get away with him. And so he started gathering these other hermits together only once a week. He said, I don't want to see you all week except on Sundays. And they would come together once a week for worship and a communal shared meal on Sundays. And then they go off to their cave in the middle of the desert and spend the rest of the week praying and fasting. And that was the first kind of monasticism where there was a common life that was shared. And that set the stage for what we currently know as monasticism. These communities of monks or nuns that covenant and say these vows together, that they will live together and that they will take on certain vows. Certainly chastity um, is usually a vow of monasticism. Always, I think that's a given. Poverty. Um, different other disciplines are taken on. And these different kinds of disciplines were kind of codified together now in the 6th century by Benedict, who was one of these other early monks. And this rule was basically a way of having kind of a list of what they would do and what they would covenant to do together as a community, a way of patterning their life together as monks living in community together. Um, and it was actually, the rule of Benedict was actually meant to help Them not be so severe on themselves because actually, these ascetic types they'd get uh, an ascetic basically means self denial. These self denying types they'd get out on their own and they do all sorts of extreme things to try to resist the temptations of the flesh. And Benedict's rule was actually gracious because they had to come together, and one of the basic aspects of the rule was obedience and obedience to the Lord, but to the Lord through the leader of the community, often called an abbot or in female communities, an abbess. Um, and so they were um, emphasizing this heavy submission and obedience to the abbot, and that actually had prote- helped protect against these tendencies to want to curb the flesh so much that they would actually do themselves harm. Whew. So um, so the rule of Benedict helped um, protect, um, but it also helped kind of guide many communities, and it became the rule, the standard basic form of what different monastic communities throughout Europe for centuries would do. So involved in the rule of Benedict are the disciplines of obedience, which I've already mentioned, silence, which I'm just going to pause in honor of silence, because we don't get a lot of silence, do we? Humility, prayer, in different kinds of prayer, but especially for the monastics, they would pray the daily office seven times a day. They would pray through. So what we have as morning prayer is just one of the times of the day when they would pray seven times a day all throughout the night. And if you ever go to any of the ab- abbeys in, um, in England or in Europe, what you'll see is that they lived right next to the church. And so all of the monks and nuns would be up in this one dorm and they had these night stairs that they could, so that they could get to the church at midnight and at 3 a.m. or whatever time it was so that they could pray, um, quickly and then tumble back into bed. So they prayed around the clock. They, um, they renounced their possessions, and they shared all their possessions together, their common possessions, and there was often a vow of poverty taken on with that. They also um, valued daily work, and so there was a balance between rest and prayer and work. And part of their work involved physical labor, and part of the work involved study. So the physical labor would often be gardening or um, doing some kind of physical thing excuse me, serving in the kitchens at the monastery. They were, no task was too low for them to do. Um, And then study also was a component. They would read and study the ancient languages. And also, if you've ever read some of those books about like how the Celts saved civilization or how the Irish saved civilization talks about these monastic groups that would copy out the manuscripts of the Bible along with the Greek classics. And part of their study was to learn the Greek and know it and also to preserve scripture. We wouldn't have scripture as we have it were it not for those throughout the centuries that took this vow to work in this way. And then finally, hospitality was a big aspect of what these communities would do because they would welcome any travelers, no matter their status in life high or low, they would welcome them in and feed them and give them a bed at night. So this rule of Benedict has kind of developed over the years. Again, I mentioned there's a medieval proliferation, but this um, these Catholic disciplines of the rule of Benedict really became popular in the last 50 years, and especially through one man's book called A Celebration of Discipline. This guy's name is Richard Foster, but I'm... i I was calling Stephen Foster, and <laughs> I think about down like to sing this song because I feel like for me it helps kind of burst the bubble of its solemnity and self-importance, which it is a very important book and it talks about very important things. Um, and yet I have a lot of issues with it, and so I'm going to tell you about some of the pros and cons of this book and some of the pros and cons of this mindset of setting out on a path and saying I'm going to do all these things and then I'm going to grow spiritually from it and saying if I just do all these things, and it might be might be poverty and chastis, chastity and daily work that involves labor and study and hospitality and extreme submission and obedience to one person. But it might involve other things. It might, if you're a Protestant, it might involve the obligatory 45-minute long quiet time in the morning at 4 a.m. before the children get up. My mother did that, I think, every day of our um, of our lives. And uh, but I I, I I fail repeatedly at that goal. And I imagine many of us fail at that goal. If you've been up at 3 a.m., there's no way you're going to get up at 4 a.m. again. Um, if you've been up at 3 a.m. to nurse the baby, you're not, going it's not going to happen. You need as many of those hours of sleep as you can get. So again, this is what this new book, um, looks at. So Richard's, Richard Foster's A Celebration of Discipline. The subtitle to the book is uh, The Path to Spiritual Growth, Growth. Um, so the whole title I don't like because sometimes discipline doesn't feel good. It's hard to celebrate it, and then it's questionable whether or not it leads to spiritual growth, and so these are some things I'm going to talk about in the next few minutes. So Richard Foster is a Quaker, and he, in this book, talks about three different kinds of disciplines, and he numbers four within each of the three different categories, making up Around round total of 12, there are give or take more or less that you could choose or pick, um, pick or choose from. He talks about inward disciplines of meditation, which he considers different from prayer and also different from Eastern meditation, so that's good. He calls meditation a familiar friendship with Jesus, filling the mind with um, communication with Jesus and not emptying it, and attachment, not necessarily that kind of Buddhist detachment that accompanies Eastern meditation. So he talks about meditation, prayer, fasting and he talks specifically about how to fast which is always dangerous for us as women I think because I had one friend in college who would be like well I'm fasting from bread for the next six months and I was like you're not fasting from bread you're on a diet just call it what it is you're not fasting it's a diet I mean if you want to pray and ask the Lord to help you stick to your diet that's one thing but call it what it is it's diet not fasting so meditation prayer fasting and study, those are these internal disciplines, inward disciplines, outward. Um, and he says about these internal disciplines that they offer avenues of personal examination and change. They allow us to shed our superficial habits and bring the abundance of God into our lives to live a deeper, um, richer, inward life. He talks about outward disciplines, um, the way we live our life outside that help prepare us to make the world a better place, in his own words. Simplicity. Again, I don't need... Ten kinds of cheese in my drawer in the refrigerator. Maybe I only need one kind. Or um, solitude. I'm getting away to find time alone uh, with ourselves and alone with the Lord. Submission. um, Outwardly humbling ourselves to other people. Not always having to be right. Um, and service um, giving up sacrificially on behalf of other people Um, and so then he also talks about corporate disciplines so they're not just individual but he talks about corporate things confession which we do every sunday worship again every sunday guidance seeking out one person to help us along the way and celebration and he claims that these bring us nearer to one another and to god so again the goal of his whole book is to take on certain practices and mindsets that in theory according to him will position ourselves in such a way so as to welcome the cultivation of the fruits of the holy spirit which if you remember from galatians 5:22 and 23 are love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control. So there are good things about this book. It's not all bad. Um, so forgive me for being a little critical. But some of the good things that I'll just list, kind of. Well, let me just take a pause. Have any, have any of you read this book, *Celebration of Discipline*? Yes? Yeah. And y- did you enjoy it or not enjoy it? You could. Can... What's that?
0: parts of it? I haven't read it.
1: Yeah, and I read it. Um, I read it in seminary. Along, uh, that's almost. Over ten years ago now and i I read it, and parts of it I enjoyed and um, interestingly enough, in my seminary, as you probably you might know this, you might not know it, but Paul Zhao came directly from the Advent to Trinity in Ambridge where I when I was in school and he went he started in two thousand and four in Ambridge, and I started in two thousand and four, so a lot of the same teaching that adventurers were getting here, I then got right afterwards in seminary, and so a lot of his kind of I kind of called them his disciples, his little Um, groupies would follow him and would be in this class where I was taking this where where we had to read this book and they hated this book and they, they slammed it and they were like it's horrible it's all law there's no gospel there's no grace and to defend in Richard Foster's defense, I think he perceives that he is positioning us to receive grace through enumerating how to take on these different disciplines. He really does believe that he's calling us to move beyond the surface living into the depths um, spiritually, and that there, in the depths, God will continue His transformative work that He has begun through um, through our conversion. And so he talks about um, he talks about it being grace, and he talks about that a lot, even in the introduction. Um, he says. When we despair of gaining inner transformation through the human powers of will and determination, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, then we're open to a wonderful new realization. Inner righteousness is a gift from God to be graciously received. The needed change within us is God's work, not ours. That's good, right? He's saying not only are we justified by faith, but this ongoing work for the moment of our conversion until the moment of our death, or when we see um, Jesus face to face, face to face, if he comes back before we die, um, we will. God will transform us, and it will be his work. He will be the subject of the sentence, and we will be the object of the sentence. He will work his work in us and through us. He will transform us. So he's saying this right here, which is good, um, although I don't think he always lives up to what he's saying or unfortunately so he keeps on going god has given us the disciplines of the spiritual life as a means of receiving his grace these disciplines allow us to place ourselves before god so that he can transform us so in theory all good um again against willpower he's very against willpower which is helpful even if he doesn't really give us a how-to on how to get away from this willpower mindset. If I just think I can, if I just set it on my calendar, if I put a reminder on my iPhone every day at 5 a.m., then I'm going to get up and read my Bible at 5 a.m., right? Embarking on any taking up of these practices is not meant to be through willpower, he says, and he has a couple quotes. Willpower will never succeed in dealing with the deeply ingrained habits of sin. And he quotes someone, Emmett Fox writes, As soon as you resist mentally any undesirable or unwanted circumstance, you thereby endow it with more power, power which it will use against you, and you will have depleted your own resources to that exact extent. Again, any time you resist mentally any undesirable or unwanted circumstances, you're resisting it and suddenly it becomes stronger because you're giving it so much mental energy. You thereby endow it with more power, and that power comes back to haunt you and really takes you over. Another quote, Heine Arnold, I'm not sure who that is, but he says, as long as we think we can save ourselves by our own willpower, we will only make the evil in us stronger than ever. Darn it. That's rough. (laughs) We have to say with St. Paul then in chapter 7 of Romans. Who then will deliver us from this body of death? If we set our minds to eradicate sin in our lives, and especially these outward behaviors a sinfulness that manifests itself. Sometimes we're more concerned about the inner life, but more often than not, we're concerned about the outward manifestation of our sin, probably because we care more about what other people think than about having our insides match our outsides. We care more about that outer holiness than the inner holiness. Um, there was just an example of this effort to ex- exert willpower. I mentioned, put an, a reminder on your phone. Um, there's a, there was someone when I was in seminary and again, I was maybe the only single girl under the age of 40. So there were all these men under the age of 40 that were single. Some were a lot were married as well. But I remember there was man, one man that I thought, ooh, he he's kind of nice. Maybe maybe we should go on a date." And um, then I noticed and I didn't I hadn't heard of this. I noticed that he walked around with these rubber bands on his wrist. And I had never heard of this, but someone explained it to me, and I was so shocked and appalled that I was like, maybe we shouldn't go on a date. Someone told me that, and not because of what, someone said that the rubber bands were a lot within a lot of evangelical circles. Some guys, in particular, but girls also, will have rubber bands around their wrists, and if they have a lustful thought, I know, or some kind of sinful thought, they'll snap the bands on their wrists, to get them to stop thinking that, or to, again. It's not gonna work, does it? <laughs> and this same, this same quote really influences that. As long as we think we can save ourselves by our own willpower, we will only make the evil in us stronger than ever. I wasn't so concerned about whatever was originating in this guy's thought that made him want to snap his wrists. I was more concerned about the mentality that thought that that would be sufficient for getting rid of that thought or that he had enough control and agency to be able to do that on his own and that God would work through that method. So, again, the danger is that we would approach spiritual disciplines. I lost my book. i here. With that same mentality, the snap our wrist mentality, that set the alarm on our phone and it's going to work and we're going to do this because very often that's in our own strength. So again, there are other quotes in this book that suggest that he doesn't actually think what he says he just mentioned. So there's some ways, he says, um, it's only through these practices that spiritual growth can be found. That's on the book flap. Foster shows that only by and through these spiritual practices that spiritual growth can be found. He also says, let us be among those who believe that the inner transformation of our lives is a goal worthy of our best effort. There's a sense in which that's true. Yes, we want to put you know put our best before the Lord and we want to trust that He can work through our agency. Um but the danger is that He's actually putting forward a new law um, rather than just positioning ourselves for inner transformation. Uh, what he, which is what he says. He says he doesn't intend for this to become a law, but simply to be a middle way between the two errors or extremes. And he identifies moralism on the one side and antinomianism on the other side. Moralism is can-do, willpower, and externals over internals, and us, our agency, over God's agency. And antinomianism is throw up our hands, nothing's going to work, so anything goes. So because we don't have this agency, well, then we can simply um, devolve into a life of sin. Anything goes. Um, and those are two, that's a false dichotomy. And that's one of the things that Paul Zoll would continually say that was so helpful for me to hear, that um, the danger of antinomianism is not as strong as people think it is. There's always this fear that we're going to become ones who say anything goes um, just because we've been saved by grace. But in fact, um, when grace has truly been received by the old me, somehow, miraculously, I voluntarily want to obey, despite myself. I voluntarily find myself no longer doing thus and such, no longer lying as a way of habit, no longer um, caring very much what other people think, no longer being as self-absorbed, as self-conscious, um, as self-justifying, um, wanting to do everything through, um, wanting to be justified through my own works. Suddenly, um, because I've been justified by God's work on my behalf, there is this voluntary desire to do the works of righteousness and trust that God will, in fact, be the one to produce those works within me. Okay. So there are some dangers, again, to this thought, this approach that says that we'll, we'll position ourselves to receive from God. Um, if we are the agents, then uh, the agents have changed. Then suddenly, if we think we can do fill in the blank, then if God doesn't do what we expect in return, if I set my alarm and wake up every day at 5 a.m., but I'm still um, lying all the time or I'm still um, angry all the time, and it doesn't actually change my demeanor, then I'm going to be really mad at God. I'm going to say, God, I did my part. I woke up every day and I expected you to do your part, which was to, to do this and this. Um, and then we're upset when he doesn't hold up to his part of the bargain. Or we'll get frustrated and dismayed and fall into despair about persistent sin. The honest truth is that sin is going to persist in this lifetime until we die or until we see the Lord Jesus face to face. And we don't always have control over or say over which sins go away and which sins he heals us from in this life. I'd really like to stop being late everywhere. And I try and I try and I try. And is it a sin? No, but it is the sin of thinking I can do everything because I don't know, if, but if you're like me, I have 10 more minutes and I'm like, oh good, I can do these five things, but I can't do those five things, I think I can do more than I can do, it's a little bit of pride right there that causes me to be late always, um, I would love for that to be healed and changed in me now, but no matter how hard I try, um, it hasn't changed yet, and so I'm longing and waiting for that change to occur, Um, but maybe there are other things that I don't even perceive to be problems that God is changing within me, and we have to trust that there are. Okay, so Richard Foster, again, he doesn't really say how to engage in the disciplines without them becoming a law, and I would say that his own attitude towards them at the time reveals that he does, in fact, view them as a lot rather than as options. He considers them as essentials, hallmarks of the Christian life that we all must undertake. Um, and so you can get into some danger there, because if we are agents in that change rather than objects of that change, um, then we're going to have a lot of pride. We're going to have a lot of resentment towards God when he doesn't do what we think he should do. So I, I recommend two other books, which we actually use them in the discipleship classes, um, because I think they're a lot more gracious. I think they actually 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 come from a more Protestant viewpoint about justification by faith, um, and then also the sense in which God is the agent of transformation in our lives um, from here until we see him um, for all eternity. And so this one is really helpful for men called God in my everything, or women, um, but this one, and this one I think could be helpful for men or women as well, but she uses a lot of images and language that I think are meant to appeal directly to us as women, and so I think a lot of men have a hard time getting over that, um, but this one, she is so especially gracious, even in her title, she says, she calls it Sacred Rhythms, Arranging Our Lives for Spiritual Transformation. That's a lot different than positioning. That sounds like we're setting up a room um, to create conversation. Or it sounds like we are um, placing something in some place and trusting that someone else will do the work. Um, It's a lot more gracious. It recognizes our own... our own uh, objectivity in it, that we're the ones that God is acting upon. And so even when she talks about taking on the spiritual disciplines, she suggests that they need to come from a desire and come from a longing. And so if in your daily life all you have is noise and chaos, which especially as mothers, that's likely, then she suggests if your longing is for silence, then look and find the times when you already have silence. And seek out other times when you might find silence regularly. And trust then that God is the one who's put that longing and desire in your heart. And he'll be faithful to meet you in those moments when you're able to get away. And that the getting away a little bit, if you're able to get away a little bit, you'll just long for more and trust that God will work even more through it. And so it's very gracious. It's very dependent upon the Lord's initiative and the Lord's directive rather than our own directive and our own way of, I'm going to set up this whole um, plan for my life and try to live up to it. Okay. Um, any thoughts about this or questions about these two books? I know a lot of people here who've been in the discipleship classes might have read one or both of these. Do you want to comment or add anything to what I've said Why take a breath? Please comment. Yeah, please, Nancy. the sacred stuff, Yeah. And, and I have read
0: Celebration just probably 15 or 20 years ago. Yeah. And found exactly what you said, that it felt more like law. Yeah. And, and it was, and it, yeah, it was just a hard book. But uh, the sacred rhythms really drew me in and, you know, like you say, sort of find times that you already <coughs> can set aside more don't I mean, a normal pattern and mm-hmm. not prescribe
1: um, as a legalism. Yeah. I felt guilty and like I was never doing enough when I read Richard Foster's, Stephen Foster's book, Campdown <laughs> Races. Um, but this book, I felt like uh, y- you read it and you feel like, okay, God, I would love to have more of this in my life. I'm it going to... yeah created a longing. That book and, yeah. That book made me feel unworthy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. This book made me feel unworthy. This book created a longing. Thank you for that, Nancy. That's very, very eloquent. Anyone else have anything they want to add that's read them? Yeah, please go to... Um,
0: just take a rhythm, even in my own, like, sinful, you know, give me a checklist. <laughs> I know. I, you know, like, I, I so fall into that. I think even in when I read that and there were some things that I so enjoyed, like the, the different things that I tried, that I'd be like, ooh, I want to go back to that. And I would be shutting everything else down, you know, to try yeah. to get there yeah. or whatever it was again. And I, uh, it was sort of like what you said, that, that I wasn't... I, even in my own sin. With that book, I wasn't consulting the Lord about what it was that He was calling me to do. Yes. Yeah, you know?
1: So there is a danger within so ourselves. Way, yeah. There's
0: kind of a danger. But I'd say I was grateful because the Lord, He just sort of showed. I mean, He was just kind of like Gunnar, you're you're doing that thing again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, which uh, is very gracious
1: of which Him. Is very gracious <laughs> of him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You
0: know, and I was a little frustrated because I was like, but I'm, I I liked this one thing. You know, this fits. You know. Yeah. Like, but that's not. So either way, I think just. Just the prayer of openness, you know, like okay, Lord, I'm following Your lead on this.
1: Even when in the middle, I kind of want to take the lead back. Right. I was even hearing someone preach recently. It was the I think it was John Guest again on Wednesday, um, here during the Lent lunches. I think he was saying um, when Jesus is in control of your life, you want to. He's not in the back seat. I mean, he's not in the passenger seat. He's in the driver's seat. And we just want to be in the driver's seat, especially where this is concerned, especially where our spiritual growth is concerned. We want to be in the driver's seat and we're not in the driver's seat. The Lord is, and we have to trust that. So I'm going to talk about a third way, you know, neither Richard nor even Ruth Haley Barton, who's wonderful. And I really think that this girl gets at it in her book. Again, Catherine McNeil, Long Days of Small Things, Motherhood as a Spiritual Discipline. She seems to agree with Richard Foster that the disciplines are the path of spiritual growth. So I think she's not as aware that she's putting out a different approach um, as she is. She is really putting out a different approach, but at the beginning she begins to think that she is putting out this approach that she's following uh, Richard Foster. She says, um, let's see, let me get the, she thinks that because she's, she's done the Richard Foster stuff, she's done it at a different, uh, at different points. She says that um, before becoming a mother, I eagerly embraced uh, as many as, th- as these responsibilities in celebration of discipline Uh, As many of these as my responsibilities allow. And now, as a mother of three young children, she says, My responsibilities rarely allow me to take a shower. (laughs) Much less sharpened spiritual practices. Silence and solitude, never, ever, day or night. Prayer, harder than you'd think after years of sleep deprivation. Fasting, not while pregnant or breastfeeding. Service, Well, my kids definitely left their mark at that time. We helped at community uh, painting day. (laughs) Worship, there were years where I didn't attend a worship service without a toddler bouncing on my back. or I would even say trying to shush the children in the pews before that moment when they get to go out for Sunday school. So she's aware that her own life and our lives as mothers, in particular, don't allow themselves, don't allow us to take on these disciplines intentionally in the way we might want to, in the way our sinful flesh might want to take them on. Um, so she knows she doesn't have the time or ability to intentionally take these on, and yet she, her conclusion is right on point. And this is what I really love about this book. Her experience shows her that she actually believe something else, that it's not in taking these on, but rather submitting to the life that's before her. And so she says, I believe with all my heart that every department store meltdown is cultivating my soul into something strong and beautiful. I cling to a deep and certain conviction that motherhood is in and of itself a spiritual practice, that our father beckons us to simply awaken and see the spiritual disciplines we already perform each day. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruits of the Spirit, again. We may not realize it, but a harvest is being formed in our souls as we ebb and flow through sleepless nights and chaotic days. And she calls the life of being a mother, especially of young children, a trial by fire. And so in the midst of that trial by fire, in the midst of the life that God has called her to and all of the chaotic aspects of that life, she says that rather than taking on new things, she's going to encourage us as we read this book to rather um, see what God has placed in our life anyway and to breathe deeply and live in it, to drink deeply from him through it, um, to um, take time to notice what he's already doing in and through our lives. And so it's really beautiful. So she sees that by actually submitting to the life that God has given her with all of its sacrifice, with all of its labor, with all of its suffering, that is where and how God is going to meet her and then transform her. Um, And so I would say that this is true for us as well. Um, And she goes through their beautiful chapters in this. Again, she says that men could read it, but she gets very explicit about some of the physical aspects of being a mother that maybe some men would be squeamish about it. But she, um, she has... Um, all of these different, um, Chapters that are very theologically formed, about, um, and they're all under these theological terms. So redemption, consecration, creation, incarnation, nurture, service and solitude, and sacrifice and surrender. And in the mi- at the end of each chapter, she really describes really just going through the life of being a mother and some of the things that she experiences daily and the way in which she experiences God's grace to her and some of the work that God is doing in her while she's trying to get her children ready for school or while she is trying to get um, through the door. She talks, one of the first images that she uses is having two children and a baby in the carrier and having gotten groceries and trying to open a door to get out of a shop. Mm-hmm. And no one, she, just even the balancing act of doing that um, was something that was a way in which God spoke to her about what God was doing in her life. And so it's really beautiful, the Lord taking um, what was already going on in her life and speaking to her about what he was doing. And she helps us trust that God is doing something in our lives, even when it doesn't feel like it. So one last little bit about her book that I really love, and then I'm going to spend the next few minutes on um, God's book, on Scripture and what Scripture has to say about this. And um, the chapter that... I've most recently read is called um, Service in Solitude, All-Nighters with God, and Where I Am as a Mom with a Baby that Doesn't Sleep. I was particularly drawn to this chapter, and she quotes Richard Foster in this chapter on page 100. She quotes Richard Foster as saying um, about the disciplines, um, the flesh whines against service, but screams against hidden service. Again, Motherhood is all about hidden service that we don't get credit for. It strains and pulls for honor and recognition. It will devise subtle, religiously acceptable means to call attention to the service rendered. If we stoutly refuse to give in to this lust of the flesh, we crucify it. Every time we crucify the flesh, we crucify our pride and arrogance. I want to zero in on this because that is a quote from Richard Foster, and I think he is wrong. (laughs) Did you hear the agency? We crucify the flesh. Um, we crucify the flesh and he's, he's, he's showing um, this misguided view and when you read um, I'm reading now Galatians chapter 2 and St. Paul in talking to the Galatians they also had issues with agency they were saved by grace through faith and they then wanted to ta- we'll take it from there and there were teachers that came in and told them you've got to take it from there you've got to be in charge of your own spiritual transformation now now that you've been saved what are you going to do and um and paul is so concerned that they rest and that they rest in the work that god had done on their behalf and so he's talking about what it means to be justified by faith and not through works of the law um and so he talks about this new life in verse 20 this maybe was a verse that you memorized um as a young person like like i did um I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. I have been crucified with Christ. Do you hear the passive voice in that? Not I crucify the flesh, like Stephen Foster says in his book. Not we crucify the flesh. We have been and it's past tense. We have been crucified with Christ. We are passive. We're the objects in the sentence. God is the subject. We're the object on the other side of the verb. We, yes, we are involved and we have some agency, and yet we are objects of what God is doing, of God's work in our life. When I first um, really attached myself to this verse, it was not long after becoming a Christian at age 13. i kind of been sort of a Christian, but hadn't really engaged with um, Jesus' to death on my behalf as a sinner until I was 13. And then reading this verse and memorizing, I, I thought what it meant was that I had to, in my self-denial and denying the things that any um, teenager would want to do with their life, all of the freedoms that you suddenly now have or seem to have, and wanting to um, enjoy them with abandon, I felt like I wasn't allowed to as a Christian. Some of those things I probably, probably was better off not enjoying. And some of the things maybe weren't that bad. But I felt like in that denial and that um, turning away from those things, I was crucifying the flesh. And now I believe that's not true. (laughs) Again, God is the agent of change in our lives. And so um, even as the bells ring, I'm going to go to Hebrews chapter 12 which is where I'm going to finish, because in Hebrews chapter 12, the Lord says um, to this people that were suffering, and he was calling them to endure in the midst of the suffering and the trials that were right before them. Endure because Jesus endured the cross. Endure because God is working something through this. It's almost echoing Romans 8, and he says, my son or daughter, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son or daughter whom he receives. It is for discipline you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Here he's saying the circumstances of our lives, the suffering that we have no control over, even the day-to-day chronic things that we might experience, like back pain. And I'm not saying don't go to a doctor and get your back pain fixed, but in the midst of the back pain you already have, it might be that God is asking you to call out and rest upon him, to call out to him in prayer for his strength and his guidance in the midst of what you find yourself experiencing. And the same is true for whatever circumstance we might find. It m- might be that you're experiencing the pains of motherhood or the day-to-day um, torture of sleeplessness, which is really a legitimate, bona fide, international form of torture. You might be experiencing that as well, or it might be something else. It might be um, loneliness. It might be a difficult... Dare I say it, um, relationship. It might be um, a stress that you have no say over, something that's going on in your husband's life that you cannot control or change as much as you might like to. Um, All of these different things that are outside of our control are within God's control. And there's something about um, submitting to them and allowing God to um, work through us, trusting in his love and mercy towards us, and welcoming his work in our life. And so um, God is the one who transforms us. And as we engage in different other practices, or as we recognize the way God is at work, through the things that we're already experiencing, we can then then we really are positioning ourselves to receive what he might have for us when we submit to his will on our behalf. When we let it go, and this is one last quote, and I know I'm going over time, but one last quote from her that really gets at this submission to what God is doing is um, in that same chapter on service and solitude. She says um, again about service: mothers serve their families in all manner of dirty and undignified positions. Willingly taking on a workload so extensive and ongoing, you could never hire someone to do it. To meet the unquenchable thirst of our children's needs, we empty ourselves again and again. I have nothing left. We've all said this at one time or another, even if no one was around us to hear it. The services we perform as mothers bring us to the end of ourselves, often without support. Nothing left to feed ourselves, nothing left to give God. No one around to pick us up off the floor. And yet it is here at this broken, depleted moment, that motherhood is most powerfully a spiritual practice. The goal of spiritual disciplines is to bring us to this place, to the place where we have lost everything but God. In this deep emptiness, we must cast ourselves upon him and wait on him, for we have nothing else, no other hope. So whatever it may be, maybe it's the throes of motherhood right now, or maybe it's something else that puts you at the end of your rope. But it's truly there that God is disciplining us bringing about the fruit and harvest of righteousness in our lives, as difficult as that may be. And that's a lot harder than simply choosing a checklist of to-dos. So let's pray, and feel free to stay after and ask me any questions. Father, indeed, we, dare we say it, we welcome whatever it is you're doing in our life that is outside our control. We don't welcome it. We don't like it. We'd rather not. We'd rather get a full night's sleep or be able to um, do any number of things that we used to be able to do or we'd um, really like to be able to change other people, um, but we trust that you are changing us in the midst of this hard place where we find ourselves. And so we we submit to that. We say we trust you. We trust who you are, um, and we trust what you've done for us in the past in Jesus, and we trust that you are now indeed transforming us into his likeness from one glory to another. And so we ask, Lord, that you would indeed do this. We welcome your work. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.